Chapter 8 of The Myths and Fables of Today by Samuel Adams Drake. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by John W. Stevens, Camus, Washington. The Myths and Fables of Today by Samuel Adams Drake. Chapter 8 of love and marriage now for good luck cast an old shoe after me haywood the folklore of marriage is probably the most interesting feature of the general subject to the tender sex at least with whom indeed none other in the nature of things could be to hold so important a place in consequence all favorable or unfavorable omens are carefully treasured up in the memory, quite as much pains being taken to guard against evil prognostics as to propriate good fortune. Quite naturally, the young unmarried woman is possessed of a burning desire to find out who her future husband is to be, what he is like, whether he is rich or poor, short or tall, and if they twain are to be happy in the married state or not. To this end, the oracle is duly consulted, either openly or secretly, after the best approved methods. One of the best-known modes of divination is this. If, fortunately, you find the pretty little ladybug on your clothes, throw it up in the air, repeating at the same time the invocation, Fly away east, fly away west, show me where lives the one I love best. All charms of this nature are supposed to possess particular power if tried on St. Valentine's Day, Christmas Eve, or Halloween. Curious it is that on a day dedicated to all the saints in the calendar, evil spirits, fairies, and the like are supposed to be holding a sort of magic revel unchecked or that they should be thought to be better disposed to gratify the desires of inquisitive mortals on this day than any other. At any rate, calendar or no calendar, Saint Matrimony is the patron saint of Halloween. Among the many methods of divination employed, a favorite one was to drop melted lead into a bowl of water, though any other sort of vessel would do as well, and whatever form the lead might take would signify the occupation of your future husband, or to go out of doors in the dark with a ball of yarn and unwind it until someone would begin winding it at the unwound end. At this trial, the expected often happened, as the enamored swain would seldom fail to be on the watch for his sweetheart to appear. So also, the white of an egg dropped in water and set in the sun was supposed to take on the form of some object, such as a ship under full sail, indicating that your husband would be a sailor. Burning the nuts is perhaps the most popular mode of trying conclusions with fate, as it certainly is the most mirth-provoking. On this interesting occasion, lads and lassies arrange themselves in a circle before a blazing wood fire on the hearth. 
nuts are produced. Each person, after naming his or her nut, puts it upon the glowing coals with the unspoken invocation. If he loves me, pop and fly. If he hates me, live and die. The poet Gay turns this somewhat differently, but it is not our affair to reconcile conflicting presages. He sings, To hazelnuts I threw into the flame, and to each nut I gave a sweetheart's name. This with the loudest bounce me sore amazed, that in a flame of brightest color blazed. As blazed the nuts, so may the passions grow, for twas thy nut that did so brightly glow. A still different rendering is given by Burns. According to him, each questioner of the charm names two nuts, one for himself, one for his sweetheart, presumably the mode practiced in Scotland in his time. Jean slips in twa we twenty, wa twas she wada tell, but this is Jock, and this is me, she says into her cell. He blazed o'er her, and she o'er him, as they wad never mar part, till fluff he started up the lum, and Jean had ain a ser heart to seat that night. Poppin' corn sometimes takes the place of burning the nuts. The spoken invocation is then pit, put, turn inside out. There are also several methods of performing this act of divination with apples. The one most practiced in New England is this. First, pare an apple. If you succeed in removing the peel all in one piece, throw it over your head, and should that charm work well, the peel will so fall as to form the first letter of your future husband's name. Or as Gay poetically puts it, I pair this pippin round and round again, my shepherd's name to nourish on the plain. I fling the unbroken paring over my head, upon the grass a perfect L is red. When sleeping in a strange bed for the first time, name the four posts for some of your male friends. The post that you first look at upon waking in the morning bears the name of the one whom you will marry. Care is usually taken to fall asleep on the right side of the bed. By walking down the cellar stairs backward, holding a mirror over your head as you go, the face of the person whom you will marry will presently appear in the mirror. The oracle of the daisy flower, so effectively made use in Goth's Faust, is of great iniquity and is perhaps more often consulted by blushing maidens than any other. When plucking away the snowy petals, the fair questioner of fate should murmur low to herself the Kabbalistic formula. He loves me, he loves me not, she said, bending low her dainty head, or the daisy's mystic spell. He loves me, he loves me not, he loves me, she murmurs mid the golden groves of the cornfields on the fell. 
as the last leaf falls so goes the prophecy if you put a four-leafed clover in your shoe before going out on a walk you will presently meet the one you are to marry the same charm is used to bring back an absent or wayward lover consequently there is much looking for this bashful little plant at all of our matrimonial resorts the rhymed version runs in this wise a clover a clover of two put it in your right shoe the first young man you meet in field street or lane you'll get him or one of his name in some localities a bean pod or a pea pod put over the door acts as a charm to bring the favored of fortune to lift the latch and walk in this is old the poet gay has it in rhyme thus as pea cods once i plucked i chanced to see one that was closely filled with three times three which when i cropped i safely home conveyed and o'er the door the spell in secret laid the latch moved up when who should first come in but in his proper person lubberkin another mode of divination runs in this way on going to bed the girl eats two spoonfuls of salt the salt causes her to dream that she is dying of thirst and whoever the young man may be that brings her a cup of water in her dream is the one she will marry if after seeing a white horse you count a hundred the first gentleman you meet will be your future husband so far as appearances go at least the custom of brewing love filters or love potions to forestall or force the natural inclination has completely died out from this source the astrologers magicians and fortune tellers of former times reaped a rich harvest many instances of the use of this old custom occur in literature jocelyn naively relates that only one we can call to mind coming near home to us he says i once took notice of a wanton woman's compounding the solid roots of this plant satyrion with wine for an amnamorous cup which wrought the desired effect would that the hideous and barbarous custom of administering poisons to gratifying the cravings of hatred or the pangs of jealousy had become equally obsolete but alas the green-eyed monster is with us yet it is a fact well known to students of folklore that those customs or usage relating to marriage are not only among the oldest but have become too firmly entrenched in the popular mind to be easily dislodged thus the ceremony of throwing the shoe continues to hold an honored place among marriage customs in another place it has been referred to as sometimes employed in the common concerns of life but in the case of marriage a somewhat deeper significance is attached to it it is but fair to say however that authorities differ widely as to its origin some referring it to the testimony of the scriptures deuteronomy twenty five 
where the loosing of a shoe from a man's foot by the woman he has refused to marry is made an act of solemn renunciation in the presence of the elders. Thereafter, the obdurate one was to be held up to the public scorn, and his house pointed at as, quote, the house of him that hath his shoe loosed, end quote. So again we read in Ruth a man who plucked off his shoe and gave it to his kinsmen as an evidence to the act of renunciation, touching the redeeming of land, and this, we are told, was then the matter in Israel. Hence, it has been very plausibly suggested, especially by Mr. Thrupp in Notes and Queries, that throwing an old shoe after a bride was at first a symbol of renunciation of authority over her by her father or guardian. However that may be, it is certain that no marriage ceremony is considered complete today without it, although there is a danger of its being brought into ridicule and so into disrepute by such nonsensical acts as tying an old shoe to the bride's trunk, or to some part of her carriage, as I have seen done here in New England, the original design of the custom being lost sight of in the too evident purpose to make the wedded pair as conspicuous as possible, and their start on life's journey an occasion for the outbreak of ill-timed buffoonery. In Primitive Marriage, Mr. McLean thinks that throwing the shoe may be a relic of the ancient custom still kept among certain Hindu tribes where the bride, either in fact or appearance only, is forcibly carried off by the groom and his friends, who are, in turn, themselves hotly pursued and in good earnest pelted with all manner of missiles, stones included, by the bride's kinsfolk and tribesmen. This sham assault usually ends in the pursuers giving up the chase, as indeed was intended beforehand, and is probably a survival of the earliest of marriage customs, namely that of stealing the bride as recorded in ancient history. But this explanation is chiefly interesting as fixing the status of women in those primitive days when she was more likely the slave of a man than his equal. That relation is now so far reversed, however, that it is now the man who has become the humble suitor and declared servitor of womankind. So, at least, he insists. Now and then, though quite rarely, the old barbaric custom is recalled by the forcible abduction of some unwilling victim by her rejected lover. But only in a few instances, so far as we know, has a bride been kidnapped and held to ransom in this country before being restored to her friends. The American Indians are known to have practiced this custom of stealing the bride quite after the manner described by Mr. McLean as in vogue among the Hindus. Even royalty itself must bow to the behest of old custom as well as common mortals. When the Duke and Duchess of Albany left Windsor, while they were still within the private grounds, the bridegroom's three brothers and Princess Louise and Princess Beatrice ran across a part of the lawn enclosed within a bend of the drive, each armed with a number of old shoes with which they pelted the happy pair. 
the Duke of Albany returned the fire from the carriage with the ammunition supplied him by his friendly assailants, causing the heartiest laughter by a well-directed shot at the Duke of Edinburgh. It was always reckoned a good omen if the sun shone on a couple when coming out of church, hence the saying, Happy is the bride that the sun shines on. Everyone knows, if not from experience, at least by observation, when self-consciousness dwells in a newly married pair, what pains they take to appear like old married folk, and what awkward attempts they make to assume the desire of ordinary travelers. As touching this feature of the subject, I one day saw a carriage driven past me at which everyone stopped to look and stare in a way to attract general attention and after looking gave a broad grin the reason was apparent on the back of the carriage was hung a large placard labeled just married several old shoes besides some long streamers of cheap cotton cloth were dangling from the trunks behind when the carriage, thus decorated, drew up at the station, followed by a hooting crowd of street urchins, it was greeted with roars of laughter by the throng of idlers in waiting, while the unconscious cause of it all first learned on alighting what a sensation they had so unwittingly created. The custom of throwing rice over a bride as an emblem of fruitfulness also is very old, though in England it was originally wheat that was cast upon her head. The poet Herrick says to the bride, While some repeat your praise and bless you, sprinkling you with wheat, all the sentiment of this pretty and very significant custom is in danger of being killed by excess on the part of the performers, who so often overdo the matter as to render themselves supremely ridiculous and the bride very uncomfortable, to say the least, to scatter rice as if one were sowing it by the acre when a handful would amply fulfill all the requirements of the custom is something as if an officiating clergyman should pour a pailful of water on an infant's head instead of sprinkling it at a baptism. It is not surprising that now and then cases arise where a newly married couple try to escape from the shower prepared for them by giving these overzealous assistants the slip. A chase then begins corresponding somewhat to that just related of ignorant barbarians, and woe to the runaways if the pursuers should catch up with them. The custom of furnishing bride cake at a wedding is said to be a token of the firm union between man and wife, just as from immemorial time breaking bread has been held to have a symbolic meaning. The custom is centuries old. At first it was only a cake of wheat or barley. What it is composed of now, no man can undertake to say. That it is conducive to dreaming, or more probably to nightmare, few, we think, will care to dispute. We learn that it was a former custom to cut the bride cake into little squares or dice, small enough to be passed through the wedding ring. 
a slice drawn through the ring thrice, some have it nine times, and afterward put under the pillow, will make an unmarried man or woman dream of his or her future wife or husband. This is another of those old customs of which trial is so often made, just for the fun of the thing, you know. The chavarie, or mock serenade, is another custom still much affected in many places, notably so in our rural districts, though to our own mind, more honored in the breach than in the observance. The avered object is to make night hideous, and is usually completely successful. In the wee small hours, while sleeping peacefully in their beds, the newly wedded pair are suddenly awakened by a most infernal din under their windows, caused by the blowing of tin horns, the thumping of tin pans, ringing of cowbells, and like instruments of torture. To get rid of his tormentors, the bridegroom is expected to hold an impromptu reception, or in other words, to treat the crowd, which is more often the real object of this silly affair, to which we fail to discover one redeeming feature. The custom of wearing the wedding ring upon the left hand originated, so we are told, in the common belief that the left hand lay nearest to the heart. As is well known, the Puritans tried to abolish the use of the ring in marriage. According to Butler in Hudibras, others were for abolishing that tool of matrimony, a ring, with which the unsatisfied bridegroom is married only to a thumb. The times have indeed changed since the early days of New England. No Puritan maiden would have been married with a ring for the world's when Edward Winslow was cited before the Lord's Commissioners of Plantations upon the complaint of Thomas Merton, he was asked, among other things, about the marriage customs practiced in the colony. He answered frankly that the ceremony was performed by magistrates. Morton, his accuser, declared that the people of New England held the use of a ring in marriage to be a, quote, a relic of poppery and diabolical circle for the devil to Donson, unquote. The first marriage in Plymouth Colony, that of the same Edward Winslow to Susanna White, was performed by a magistrate as being a civil rather than a religious contract. From this time to 1680, marriages were solemnized by a magistrate or by persons specially appointed for that purpose, who were restricted to particular towns or districts. Governor Hutchinson, in his History of Massachusetts, says he believes that, quote, there was no instance of marriage by a clergyman during their first charter, end quote. If a minister happened to be present, he was desired to pray. It is difficult to assign the reason why clergymen were excluded from performing the ceremony. In new settlements, it must have been solemnized by persons not always the most proper for that purpose, considering of what importance it is to society that a sense of this ordinance, at least in some degree sacred, should be maintained and preserved. The first marriage solemnized at Guilford, Connecticut, took place in the minister's house. It is not learned whether he performed the ceremony or not. The marriage feast consisted wholly of pork and beans. 
As time wore on, marriages became occasions of much more ceremony than they were 50 or 60 years ago. During the Revolutionary period, and even later, the bride was visited daily for four successive weeks. A gold wedding ring is accounted a sure cure for styes. If the young daughter of the family should be married before her older sisters, they must all dance at her wedding in their stocking feet, if they wish to have husbands. It is strongly enjoined upon a bride, when being dressed for the marriage ceremony, to wear, quote, something old and something new and something borrowed and something blue, and a four-leafed clover in her shoe. June is now at the height of popularity as the month of all months to get married in, for no other reason than I can discover than that is the month of roses, when beauty and plenty pervade the fair face of nature. It is now the custom for the bride, if she is married at home or on returning there from church, to throw away her bouquet for the guests to scramble for. The one getting the most flowers will be married first, and so on. Giving wedding presents was not practiced before the present 19th century. One old marriage custom, though long since obsolete, may be briefly alluded to here not only for its singularity, but for its suggestiveness touching a state of mind that would admit of such tomfoolery. This was the so-called smock marriage, in which the bride went through the ceremony standing only in her shift, thereby declaring herself to be possessed of no more than she came into the world with. On being duly recorded, the act exempted the husband from liability for his wife's debts previously contracted. If she went through this ridiculous performance in the presence of witnesses and in the, quote, king's highway, end quote, that is to say, the lawfully laid out public road, she thereby cleared herself from any old indebtedness. As amazing as it may seem, several such cases are recorded in New England, the formalities observed differing somewhat in different localities. It is considered unlucky to get married before breakfast. If you marry in Lent, you will live to repent. May is considered an unlucky month to be married in. Marry in May and you'll rue the day. To remove an engagement or wedding ring from the finger is also a bad omen. To lose either of them or to have them broken on the finger also denotes misfortune. It is extremely unlucky for either the bride or groom to meet a funeral when on their way to be married. It is an unlucky omen for the church clock to strike during the performance of a marriage ceremony, as it is said to portend the death of one of the contracting parties before the year is out. End of chapter 8